You're listening to Team Talk, a podcast by the Evangelical Movement of Wales to support church leaders. Welcome to the latest episode of Team Talk from the Evangelical Movement of Wales. Team Talk is designed to support and encourage church leaders in Wales. And even today, if you've joined us and you're not in Wales, we give you a very warm welcome and trust that uh, today's session will be an encouragement, a stimulus and a blessing to you. We're really delighted today to be joined by, well, my good friend and I guess a good friend of many pastors and church leaders in Wales, Stephen Clark. Welcome, Stephen. Good to be with you. A lot of us know you, Stephen, from various things, not least of which until recently, pastor of uh, Free School Court in uh, Church Evangelical Church in Bridgend. And of course, Stephen is also the principal of the theological training course that we run with the EMW. And by the way, if you're listening and you'd like to know more about that, do take a look at our website. There's information there, or you can email us at the Evangelical Movement of Wales. So Stephen, how's life with you at the moment? Extraordinarily busy. I never thought retirement would be as busy as it is. But it's good. I'm glad to be busy and not just spending all my days lazing on a Cypress beach. Still very warm here. Sea is very uh, lovely. Yeah, but very busy. Swimming in the sea in Cyprus. That's great. By the way, I've taken up swimming in the sea in Llanelli. Uh, It's probably not quite the same this time of year, but uh, yeah, keeping fit is really important in retirement, isn't it, Stephen? Great. Well, the reason we've invited you today is, brother, I know that you have a great heart for the doctrine, really, of Christ. I know from your lectures on the theological training course, I know that this passion that you have for this particular area of Christian doctrine is, is not simply an, an academic one, but it comes very much from your your heart. I think it's fair to say that in this. I hope so, yes. Uh, it, what I mean by that, one doesn't focus just on one aspect of truth, but nothing is more central than what Paul says, him we proclaim, that is Christ, or as he says to the Corinthians, we preach Christ and him crucified, and uh, there's just an ocean of truth in the Bible concerning the person of Christ. And uh, I think it's our solemn responsibility to bring that to those who are the people of God and those who are not. So Paul says to the Colossians, him we proclaim and uh, teaching and exhorting that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We can only present people mature in Christ if we proclaim Christ. So we need to know Uh, what the scriptures say about this unique person. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, it's that time of year coming up to December uh, when there's a lot to do, obviously, in terms of connection, particularly with the incarnation of our Lord. Last podcast, we had Jonathan Thomas with us. So we were exploring some of the evangelistic opportunities at at Christmas, preaching the, the birth narrative in, in particular, I wonder if we could begin by asking you what your thoughts and maybe your experience has been uh, in Christian ministry of finding the balance at Christmas between 
taking the evangelistic opportunities, but also preaching the incarnation to Christians? I think it's I think the difference is in terms of your point of contact, your introduction. So if I'm preaching evangelistically, I work on the basis that the people before me know nothing about the Bible, are not interested in what the Bible says. So you've got to begin with your introduction to show them that what you're about to say is of supreme importance and it's more important than anything else. You're going to begin where they are and then lead into the truth. Whereas with the people of God, it's the same truth you're preaching. It's the same truth. Um, but there, you're the people who already have come to faith. You're the people who already, whatever their different uh, spiritual condition, they, they are people who accept the scriptures. And we still have to work there to show how this is um, touches them. But the approach is going to be different, hasn't it? I, I don't accept the distinction that preaching to Christians must be theological and preaching to non-Christians is non-theological. I'd agree with the late Dr. Lloyd-Jones there that, in fact, evangelistic preaching, if it's true evangelistic preaching, is profoundly theological. Just look at the number of times Paul writes to Christians and he says, don't you know? And uh, he's calling them back to things he told them when he was evangelizing them and just grounding them in the early stages of their Christian life. So that would be the main difference. Also the length. Um, if I were preaching evangelistically these days, I, I think one cannot expect the unbeliever's level of concentration to be as good as that of those who perhaps have been listening to preaching for you know some time. So in terms of... Um... <clears throat> You know, getting the balance, though, um, you know, I, I know of churches which should go completely flat out all through December evangelistically. Is there a danger sometimes that we're missing something in the life of the church? Yeah, I think so. I think if we are really preaching to Christians, preaching Christ as we should, they will get excited. And they will get that excited that they'll want to tell others. And the idea that the way to evangelize the world is to get them into some special batch of Christmas, while laudable, and, and I certainly believe in that, but it has to be married to something else. And, and what it needs to be married to is that the people of God are then thrilled at this tremendous reality of the coming of the Son of God into the world. And why did he come? You just think of one of the great classics of, of Christian literature, Cur Deus Homo by Anselm, Why Did God Become Man? It's a masterpiece, but you, you see that, that brings us to the heart of the gospel. And so we need to preach that to Christians as well as to the world. So that come Christmas time, the people of God shouldn't be in a state of almost total and complete exhaustion, but they should be stimulated, refreshed and, and gripped and fully alive. Well, I, I know we've talked about this before, that your your pattern, if I remember correctly, has been to preach really as a series leading up to Christmas on the incarnation to the church, to Christians. Are there any particular series that you have taken over the years that maybe stick in your mind? Well, that, that's an interesting question. Let me just explain what led me to do this. I think it was probably about 27 years ago. My wife said this to me. She said, outside of the Anglican churches, 
She said, isn't it awful that probably the average evangelical church doesn't preach much the message that we find in the early chapters of Matthew and Luke? Doesn't preach that much through the year? And come the Christmas season, you possibly get two sermons the Sunday before Christmas, one on Christmas Day, and then it's like Christmas wrapping paper. There's just Christmas decorations that's packed away until another year. And she said, surely this is one of the greatest parts of the Bible. I was persuaded by that, and the upshot was I would normally be preaching a minimum of nine Christmas messages. I'm not speaking now of extra things, um, you know, evangelistic carol services outside the main Sunday services, things like that. I want about the main Sunday meetings. I would probably preach nine Christmas messages a minimum of nine, um, because there'd be four Sundays, um, four Sundays in December. There'd be Christmas mornings. So that would be nine. I'm often away for the first Sunday, so that would cut it down a bit. But I would often overrun into the new year and, and sometimes bring the Christmas theme and the new year message together, just as the end of year message would often be linked with the Christmas theme. So really, that means that over the years, I've preached an awful lot of Christmas messages. And I'd have to say, I have just found it to be an inexhaustible treasure trove of the scriptures. And so much that, that in the preparation has really gripped me. Let me give you a few examples. You go through Matthew chapter 2, and you count in the narrative the number of times the phrase, the child and his mother is used. It's extraordinary. The child and his mother, the child and his mother, the child and his mother. We naturally say the mother and her child, the child and his mother, the child and his mother. What's Matthew doing? He, he's flagging up that this message is all about Christ. Yes, the wise men come in as, as, as supporting caste and Mary and Joseph, but the center of this is Jesus Christ. Um, then again, I'm thinking of the narrative here. We need You mentioned the doctrine and the theology, yes, but we need to preach the story. So think of the wise men. Now you go through Matthew chapter 2. Let me just get the text in front of me. And you look at the number of times places are mentioned in that chapter. You've got uh, in verse one, verse 1, the Magi come to Jerusalem. And then we read in verse 5 that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem in Judea. That's repeated in verse 6. We've also got reference to the rulers of Judah. Then verse 7, Herod sends them to Bethlehem. All right. Then you come to verse 13. Uh, Joseph is told, he's given the message to escape to Egypt. Verse 14, they go to Egypt. Verse 15, Egypt is mentioned again. Then verse 16, the boys in Bethlehem are mentioned. Then again, you've got Egypt again in verse 19. And then you come to the end of the chapter, verse 22, Galilee, verse 23, Nazareth. Why am I mentioning that? Because when you come to the wise men in a chapter that has so much to say about places, we're just told that the wise men have come from the east. Why the lack of specificity there? And then you bear in mind, Matthew wrote his gospel. It's a heavily Jewish gospel. He wrote it very much with, with people who knew Jewish things in mind. You start trawling through the Old Testament, and with very, very few exceptions, the East 
is always linked with being beyond the pale. It's linked with ungodliness. Genesis 3, cherubim at the east of the garden. Chapter 4, Cain goes east of Eden. You come to the Tower of Babel, they've moved east. And you see this again and again and again in the Old Testament. Then, of course, we have lots of talk about the wise men. Who were these wise men? But it's the same Greek word that's used in the Greek translation of the book of Daniel, of the wise men who cannot interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But Daniel, the Hebrew exile, is able to do so. Now, can you see how Matthew is almost subverting everything? Because here are these people who in the Old Testament... Uh, they, they don't know anything about the true God. Daniel has to come on the scene. But you're these wise men. They come in from the east. They are beyond the pale. And yet they've come to worship Jesus. That ties back, of course, to the opening of the, of the gospel. Verse 1 of Matthew. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What was the promise given to Abraham? That all nations of the earth will be blessed in his seed. And Matthew comes full circle at the end of the gospel, make disciples of all the nations. It's powerfully evangelistic. You're the least likely people, you would think, yet they've come to worship Jesus. Well, you can preach that evangelistically. You can preach that to Christians. I mean, there's just so much there. That's looking carefully at the narrative. That's asking questions of the text. Why is Matthew so specific about all these places? But when he deals with oh, just from the east, well, why not tell us where they're from? Because he's making a point. I don't think that's reading into the text. I, I think that's I think that's locating the the narrative of the text within the whole story of the scripture within a biblical theological framework. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and that's uh, you know that's a terrific example, isn't it, of uh, exploring the narrative. Mm. Uh, as you say, and something which, you know, I guess one of the problems at Christmas is there is sometimes a, you know, an assumed familiarity with the narrative. Yeah. But as you've done there, you've drilled down on it for us and already, you know, pointing out things which we must have read some of us, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of times. Well, can I give you two more examples? Can I give you two more examples? Think of how Luke begins his gospel. I preached a sermon on, on, on Luke 1, the old man's failure and the young woman's faith. Here's this old man, Zachariah. He's a priest. This is his, his work. He's a godly man. He's a righteous man. You know, Luke says so many positive things about him. He's down in Judea, which is really where all the action was religiously. The angel comes to him, though, and he doesn't believe the message. Though he's a righteous man, at that point he's unbelieving. And for his unbelief, he struck dumb. Then the angel Gabriel goes to a backwater place up in the, the north, to Nazareth. Place is important again. To a young woman, probably a teenager, Mary. She's given an even more stupendous promise than Zachariah has given. She believes it. You've got the old man's failure, the young woman's faith. Work that out into church life today. Young people may sometimes be seeing things and grasping things and have a greater faith than than the pastor, than older saints in the church, than elders. And of course, again, Luke is doing something there that throughout his gospel and throughout the book of Acts, he's often taking the people you least think likely. And he's saying, yeah, look at this person, he's got faith. 
Look at Zacchaeus, you know, the, the, this man, you never, yes, but salvation comes to him. The other one is from, uh, the other thing of narrative is um, Christmas according to Joseph. There's an awful lot going on because Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. He knows he's not the father. So quite naturally, he assumes Mary has been unfaithful to him. Betrothal, of course, in a Jewish culture was much, much bigger thing than engagement in British culture. And you could break it off by a divorce. But now this is the point. There were two ways of getting a divorce. You could either go for the full-blown public trial. We know from the Old Testament that if, if a, betrothed, a betrothed woman slept with another man, it was the death penalty. But they couldn't impose the death penalty at this point. Rome was in control. Right. They take that power from them. There were two ways of getting a divorce. One was a public showcase trial. The point of that is that the money which the man had settled on the woman... She's proven guilty, he divorces her, he gets the money back. Or you could go for a quickie divorce. If he goes for the quickie divorce, she keeps the money. The people of Nazareth would never think that if a man had thought that his wife, that his fiance, had slept with another bloke, he'd go for a quickie divorce and let her keep the, uh, keep the money. They would think, right, he's just, you know, he slept with her, he doesn't, he doesn't want to marry her. And so you know, this is why he's going for the quickie divorce. But Matthew tells us it was because Joseph was a righteous man. He did this. He's a bit like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Joseph loses his reputation for righteousness because he is righteous. Joseph is prepared to lose the money. He's prepared for people to think of him as a bit of a bad apple. In order, one to do something which he thinks is right, but also he's concerned for Mary. Now come through a little bit later to Jesus at the baptism waters. And John says to him, oh, no, no, you know, I need to come to you to do this, not, not for you to do this to me. Not, not for me to do this for you. And Jesus says, allow it to be so that we may fulfill all righteousness. You know, Joseph is almost like a trailer, uh, a type of Christ identifying with sinners. Then move on to Matthew chapter 5. What does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Well, it's found in the Christ who identified himself with sinners, but it will then lead to the kind of righteous life which you see in a man like Joseph, a concern for people as well as principles, and that anticipates what Jesus says in Matthew 5, unless all righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we won't inherit the kingdom of God. Plant that into the modern world with all the debates about transgenderism and gay rights, etc., where I think many Christians are sounding more like Pharisees than followers of the one who came into the world to save sinners. Wow. You can preach that evangelistically. You can challenge the people of God and encourage the people of God. There's an ocean of truth in the in the narratives in Matthew and Luke. Wow, indeed. And one thing, Stephen, if I could come back to you there, is the background information that you provided us with there concerning the process of uh, breaking off a betrothal. Uh, sometimes preachers are a little bit sort of struggling 
to access that sort of information, looking at context, Bible historical context. Have you got any thoughts on resources for those who are looking to seriously deal or, or get into these narratives this Christmas? Well, um, I suppose because I wrote a book on divorce, I did a lot of research into it, and um, th there, there we are. Um, I would just make the the moment you realise that he was going to divorce her quietly, that should cause us to ask questions. Hang on, you don't get a divorce in the UK for an engagement that's broken off. So, so there's obviously something going on here with Jewish thinking. I need to find out about that. Right, well, um, a good commentary. Craig Keener on Matthew is a mine of information, a mine of information. But the information on that that I gave has probably come from my own research into things. Also, work of David Instant Brewer, who I think he's still at Tyndale House in Cambridge. He's written on divorce. And sometimes it's just reading and reading the text again. Things, things like righteousness. Okay, I got that background information, but I then began to think there's something big going on here because Matthew has got a particular take on this word righteousness. Does that make sense? And it's the importance of asking questions, yeah. isn't it, of the text? Talking of books, I know uh, when we spoke recently, we, we, we mentioned a um, helpful little book for preachers at Christmas, Joy to the World, Preaching the Christmas Story by Paul Beasley Murray, IVP. Uh, I think we both agreed there's some really helpful stuff in there. Uh, so if you're looking for something to read and stimulate your thinking, particularly on narrative, that's Joy to the World Preaching the Christmas Story by Paul Beasley. Yes, Murray. that's so. Although I want to add a caveat there, Phil, and it's this. I, I, I'm not a believer in preachers getting their ideas from other people's sermons. I don't think that's good. I think we need to get to the text. You mentioned the TTC. I remember Howell Jones, who lectured us biblical studies. I remember him saying, I don't want a commentator to do my devotions for me. I want a commentator to help me in understanding what the text says, what it said and meant in its original context. Right, says Howell. It's my task then to relate that to the people today. I mean, what I got from the Beasley Murray book was the importance, and I'd already started on this road, I think, by the time I read that book, was the importance of preaching the Christmas message in an expository way, and not just using a few handful of texts and hanging the same sermon on it. And I think that's, that's what I had done for probably about 12, 13 years, and I'd probably bored people to death. I may still have bored people to death, but I hope, I hope that when I started to say this is God's word and it's inexhaustible, I, I trust people got excited by the Christmas message. I think I preached four different messages on the genealogy in Matthew. Can I say something about the genealogies? Stop me if I go on too long. By all means. Again, you think of Luke. He gives the genealogy of Jesus, he traces it back to Adam, the son of God. That's interesting, because Jesus is soon going to be called the son of God at his baptism, or has just been called son of God at his baptism. The Adam-Christ typology that Paul works with in Romans 5 is there in Luke. In Matthew, you've got something different. Jesus goes down to Egypt, and then Matthew quotes Hosea. So was fulfilled 
what the prophet wrote out of Egypt I called my son. Then, of course, he's picking up, as Hosea picks up, what Moses says to Pharaoh about Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my people go. So Luke is telling us, here is the true man. Where the first man failed and where we've all failed, here is the last Adam. Matthew's emphasis is different. Here is this highly privileged religious people, Israel, who's the son of God, but they have failed. And now here is the true Israel coming and he's going to re recapitulate in himself, as it were, the life and history of Israel. And where they failed, he's going to succeed. That takes us back to verse 1, a record of, the G of chapter 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yeah, but he's also the son of David. And we know from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the kings of the Davidic dynasty were called son of God. So you've now got the failure of, of the first man and all of us as human beings, the failure of this privileged people and the failure of all privileged people. You've then got the failure of the Davidic dynasty. But now you've got the true man, the true Israel, the true king. John then has a different take on this because he, Matthew hints at it here and there as well, but John brings out that these other son of God titles are really pale images of the son, the eternal son of God. And there's a massive theology going on there. Well, certainly not boring us to death today, Stephen. This is extremely helpful and, and gloriously stimulating. We're really glad you've been able to join us today. And uh, we look forward to part two, where I think we're going to move on to explore some of the theological mistakes that Christians can make with the incarnation and also the importance of maintaining mystery in the presence of uh, such a glorious doctrine. So thank you once again for being with us for part one. And we look forward very much to you joining us for part two. And we thank you for joining us on Team Talk and trust that not only have you enjoyed today, but if this is the first time you've joined us, look back at some of the previous episodes. I'm sure there's some more material there to encourage you. 